0: This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpa Today we take you with us as we explore Philip Johnson's Glass House in New Canaan, Connecticut. The 49-acre property opened to the public in 2007. It was the focus of one of my first feature stories for WNPR. Almost 10 years later, I wanted to go back to see how this iconic landmark in modernist architecture is still capturing the attention of not just architects, but tourists from around the world. The glass house is what brings people to this pastoral property but Johnson's evolution as an architect is spread throughout from the glass house to the brick house to the subterranean art gallery to his sculpture gallery. Irene Shum is curator of the glass house. She starts our tour at Johnson's bright red and strangely shaped postmodern building known as De
1: Monsta. If you look at the glass house as a property, there we begin with the glass house. John's, which is very geometric, and at that time, Johnson was interested in Platonic forms, and so you have this you know, circles, rectangles, pure geometry. And by the end of life, or towards the end of life, he was interested in complex geometries, and so we have this very irregular-shaped uh, building that is both black and red, one room, and and each each color indicates a form and each form has its own purpose. So one is, uh, again, it was designed as the visitor center. So the red section is where you would welcome guests Mm -hmm. and the black section is what he called the theater. And so right now we have sculpture inside the the Monster.
0: Now I had read that this is Johnson's because of uh, Mies van der Rohe Mm and the the Farnsworth House. This was his version of that. Can you talk a little bit about um, first who Mies van der Rohe was and their relationship and how Johnson came to create the Glass House?
1: Johnson joined the MoMA, which was uh, recently founded. MoMA was founded in 1929, and Johnson joined on a staff in 1930, and in discussion or or at the request of Alfred Barr, who was then the MoMA's founding director. And Johnson was the founding director of the Department of Architecture, and he was organizing their first exhibition. And his first exhibition, he wanted to highlight what he considered modern architecture. And he was much more interested in um, the movements in Germany and in the Netherlands, whereas in New York at that time, what was considered modern architecture was more art deco mm-hmm. and he was more interested in the Bauhaus, uh, these utilitarian forms. And so as he was traveling in Europe, he uh, came upon Mies van der Rohe's studio and Mies is a, plays, a, plays an important figure in, in Johnson's life or in his professional career and interests. Uh, he immediately gravitates towards Mies um, several of Mies's projects are included in the, the international exhibition that he's organizing. But he also then employs Mies to be the architect of his, ni- his apartment in New York City uh, because he wanted his apartment to showcase this new modern architecture. And so, again, Mies is someone who Johnson imitates. Mm-hmm. And after this exhibition, he's, he continues to be enthralled with Mies you know, Johnson leaves the MoMA, eventually goes to architecture school and then after architecture school act- actually returns to MoMA in 1946, he's organizing an exhibition of Mies's work and uh, around that time and in, in the discussion and planning of this exhibition, he's meeting with Mies, he see, he's at Mises studio. Mies is now designing a house for Edith Farnsworth and and they are discussing creating a house of glass and there are interviews where where Johnson is talking with Mies of oh this is impossible how do you do it and so uh, Johnson sees what uh, Mies is drawing sees his models and then has an aha moment and designs his own glass house but I'd like to be clear that the glass house, um, Philip Johnson started designing his personal residence in 1945 as well so the same time as as Mies, but it, what he does is he's he's designing a house for himself before he even has property. He actually finds the property here in New Canaan in 1946, and we'll walk over, uh, once we get to the glass house, we'll, we'll talk about how he decides to buy the land here. But Johnson goes through 29 different schematic designs, so he's really working out you know, what is my house gonna be? And before arriving at this final design that we see in front of us, and so it was a long process. It wasn't simply, oh, I saw this I saw this model and I saw this drawing and now I'm gonna make my own. Mm-hmm. It was, a, it was a, a process of finding out what was right for him. So
0: how about we walk closer to the glass house and get a, get a closer look? Today, where we live, we're taking you with us on a tour of Philip Johnson's glass house in New Canaan, Connecticut. Curator Irene Shum leads us down a gravel path to the treasured landmark. So um, we've walked inside the glass house. Tell us about this structure. Again,
1: it was built in 1949, is that correct? Yes, uh, the glass house was completed in 1949, and the glass house is actually two structures. Uh, It is a courtyard house. It's both the glass house and the brick house. If you can think of the glass house as the main house, and the brick house as the guest house and they're connected by a gravel path that runs between um, a lawn and uh, uh, people often ask did he live here and Johnson considered the glass house his primary residence so the way and his career was in New York and the way he broke his week was he spent when he was younger four days in New York and then three in New Canaan and then later it was three days in New York, four days in New Canaan, and then later in life, after retirement, it was full-time in the Glass House. Uh, Philip Johnson did live here with his partner, and in fact, he died inside the Glass House in 2005 in January. So he he regarded this as his primary residence.
0: Earlier you said that Philip Johnson started his design for the glass house much earlier than when he found the property. So how did he find this place in New Canaan?
1: Philip Johnson studied at Harvard Graduate School of Design, and uh, his teacher, Marcel Breuer, had recently moved to New Canaan. And so while visiting and looking for property, he also started to look in New Canaan because uh, Marcel Breuer was here, as was Elliot Noyes. And during the weekend, they stopped along... Ponus Ridge Road and they walked down this parcel and at that time the the description as Johnson has has been quoted uh, was that it was entirely wooded but he came upon this natural promontory that we see to our west there is a dramatic drop in the property and this natural vista is the reason why uh, Johnson purchased this property. Now to my left is a very large oak tree and this oak tree was here in 1949, and Johnson said, "I use this oak tree. I hang my hat off of it." So if you can think of the oak tree as, as this place where, off of which the glasshouse um, is hung. And the glass house is situated on this natural promontory. And as we look to the west, um, you have this incredible, naturalistic vista. Um, it's a landscape of meadows and forests. It looks very natural, but in fact, it's highly sculpted by Johnson. You
0: would said that Philip Johnson and his partner David Whitney actually did live here. I mean, most people can't imagine living in a glass house. So, What did he say about uh, the space once it was created, and he lived here for so many years?
1: Oh, um, oh I don't know if this is... <laughs> <laughs> there was an off-color remark, I don't know if it's fit for radio, but uh, where where people would ask, oh... Um, how, I could never live here, and then his response is, "Madam, I haven't asked you to." <laughs> he
0: was quite the character. So maybe we could talk about, you know, who was Philip Johnson? What was he like?
1: He was really known for his wit, uh, <laughs> and so there are all these lovely quotes uh, and, and anecdotes uh, uh, about Philip Johnson.
0: His wit, not his
1: snark. <laughs> snark <laughs> snark included
0: <laughs> um, um, what about the the brick house so you'd mention that they are together in terms of the the residence of the glass house so I mean, during the day did Philip and David spend time here and then they retire I mean how did how did the collaboration go between these two properties
1: well the brick house is the counterpoint to the glass house and in fact uh, the glass house couldn't exist as this pure form without the brick house the brick house only has two rooms, uh, a guest bedroom, and a reading room library, and a bathroom. Uh, it has uh, a very large utility closet, a closed closet, <laughs> and the mechanical room is located there. And, and all the mechanicals, uh, you, you see none in the glass house, are run through an underground conduit uh, par- that parallels the path between the br- brick and the glass house. So that's where your electrical, your plumbing, your um, then telephone wires would go through and then come up through um, the fireplace and then uh, spread out. So the, the brick house is fundamental. Uh, as far as usages, I've heard from Frank Gehry that Philip Johnson would nap in the guest room maybe during the day, but he had a bed here in the glass house, and so he resided here. There must have been some fabulous parties here. There's some wonderful photos by David McCabe. In fact, uh, we will have a David McCabe exhibition this fall that will show feature some of these social highlights (laughs) with Andy Warhol and and Robert Stern, for example, inside these photographs.
0: You did a great job uh, describing how the glass house sits on this cliff and there's meadows all around us. Um, can you talk a little bit about how Philip Johnson, I guess, crafted that to fit with the view that he had inside the glass house? I mean, there's certain things where they cut down or how did he get this view, or is it just
1: all natural? Philip Johnson considered himself a better landscape architect than an architect. And at the glass house, the landscape is essentially three components. There are lawns, meadows and forests. What Philip Johnson does to create this naturalistic look is that he does several things. First, uh, he limbs up the trees and so to create these strong verticals and then he cuts into the forests. Um, he clears and cuts into the forests and removes trees. Um, and you can see there, there are three right in front of us. He, he, they, he cuts them into these, these triangles He's playing with perspective, and he draws our eyes further into the property um, to create a sense of uh, of perspective and trying to exaggerate the space. And, it, and by doing so, he enlarges the space. And another idiom that he does, or another trope that he does, is he clears the, the, the ground so there is no underbrush. Mm-hmm. So by clearing the ground and limbing the trees up, you have these open spaces, and that lets light in, and uh, you have this wonderful a play of light, shade and shadow on the property. Um, It's very picturesque.
0: We're talking with Irene Shum. She's curator of the Philip Johnson Glass House in New Canaan, Connecticut. Since it opened to the public in 2007, thousands of visitors have come to this unique house and property, complete with more than a dozen modern and postmodern buildings. When we come back from the break, we'll hear how Johnson's legacy includes showcasing talented artists from around the world. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Today, where we live, we're taking you on a tour of the Philip Johnson Glass House in New Canaan. Nestled among beautiful views of Connecticut's countryside, curator Irene Shum talks to us inside the glass house. Later, we'll head down into the valley below the house where Johnson designed a lovely pavilion and pond. It's the site of the latest artist exhibition there. I had read that um, Philip Johnson brought together a lot of talented people and I'm curious about his legacy here um, now that he's gone, not just um, mm-hmm. his estate, but the collaboration that you, that the Philip Johnson Glass House has with um, the, art, the artist community, including what we're seeing in front of us, if you want to describe.
1: Um, we're very lucky here at the Glass House, uh, Philip Johnson was a patron of the arts, so to maintain his legacy, we have invited artists, architects, dancers, musicians to the property and we were uh, to perform and we commission work, we also um, bring work in um, but so because of this this, the temporary exhibitions and public programs continue the legacy of Philip Johnson and David Whitney as art uh, patrons. Now this year is our 10th tour season. It happens to be as well Philip Johnson's 110th uh, birthday anniversary. And to celebrate this, we invited Yayoi Kusama. Yayoi Kusama is a Japanese artist. She's 88 years old, based out of Tokyo. And uh, she had for a period between 19 58 to 1973, live in New York um, and practice, and uh, as it happens, and Philip Johnson did collect her work. In fact, one of uh, her works at the Museum of Modern Art, accumulation of stamps, was purchased by Johnson in 1962 and then donated to the MoMA in 1970. So when when thinking about what to plan for this year. I really hope to do something fun and celebratory. I really wanted to have an artist who could, whose work would be displayed in the lower meadow. And so uh, here we are inside the glass house looking down at the lower meadow. Again, this is a vast amount of space. It's more than half the property. And thinking about what artist or architect or creative person could create a piece that would hold this space visually and be interesting Yayu Kusama was one of a very select few that that could do it, and I thought Narcissus Garden would be really beautiful in the pond
0: so we 're looking down and it 's like these silvery orbs are moving with the the wind and, and
1: the and the pond as it as
0: it moves along.
1: Yes, um, the glasshouse is located actually on the east face of the Ripawam River valley, and so we have our own microclimate here. Uh, the winds come down from the northwest during the mornings and then around midday, uh, because we are close to the Long Island Sound, we get the tidal winds. And, and the winds shift and they come from the southeast and move northwest. And then again towards the evening it quiets down. So, uh, so although the pond is not tidal, it, uh, because of the wind patterns, all of these orbs continue to move. Now there are 1,300 of these stainless steel orbs. They are a mirrored finish. Um, um, they create this very glittering <laughs> effect uh, when viewed from from the promontory. When, what's nice about this particular piece or Narcissus' Garden is it it is a work that we can view from near or afar. Uh, from here it has this beautiful shimmering effect and you can see it from many different angles, from the property they're moving right now.
0: Yeah, it's really lovely.
1: It's very meditative. Here we are in the ponds, in the pavilion, in the pond, and uh, we can. When we look up, we can see the glass house, and then when we look out into the pond, we can see Yayoi Kusama's narcissus garden. Um, again, first created in 1966. Um, Yayoi Kusama is someone who. It's well known that she, as an artist, has suffered from hallucinations and um, and mental health issues. Um, what I really appreciate about her work is, for her, she uses art to, um, for me, what her work is about is about the triumph of art, uh, and it's art's ability to transform pain into um, meaning and beauty. Uh, another thing that... Kusama is known for is one of her idioms is, is the polka dot now the polka dot she says is it, she regards as an individual and she is one polka dot um, among billions and so when you look at Narcissus Garden this particular work is comprised of 1300 uh, spheres each sphere is about um, it's 30 inches in diameter so it's just under a foot and they are in the pond, and they, if you uh, think of the way Kusama looks at the world, it, uh, watching these, um, these spheres move around the wa- uh, water, it becomes very contemplative and meditative. You can think of just even human dynamics and how sometimes these, these, these spheres move in groups, then they move together. Sometimes they split apart. Sometimes there are single ones moving on their own. Um, it is a me- metaphorical work.
0: You're hearing Narcissus Garden and the silvery orbs that are moving in the pond, reflecting the afternoon sun. From the pond, we walk up and through parts of the 49-acre campus that include the art and sculpture galleries and Johnson's Library, where he was most productive. Glasshouse curator Irene Shum takes us inside.
1: So here we are in the library study. The library study has three walls of books. And this contains Philip Johnson's architectural library. The north wall is our uh, monographs, and right next to the door is a small shelf of rare books. And the other two walls are filled with uh, books about architectural types. There is one wall uh, or one window that looks out into the forest, but you, in the library study, there's only a desk and a fireplace. And Philip Johnson had called it this his monk's cell. He would come here to work. Uh, he said that he found working in the glasshouse too distracting. <laughs> this is actually probably my second favorite space. It's just, it's it's really peaceful. And um, I feel it right now. I'm just like, oh, it's just, I could be here and meditate.
0: <laughs> so while he was still living he had made the decision that he wanted this, uh, this property to go to the National Trust for Historic Preservation.
1: Philip Johnson uh, is known as an architect and someone who really advanced the art of his time. What's lesser known is that he was an active preservationist. In fact, he became involved in preservation in 1964 with the proposed raising of Penn Station in New York. There are these wonderful archival photographs of him picketing with signs uh, with Jane Jacobs in front of the old Penn Station to um, try and stop its demolition. The demolition of, or the raising of Penn Station took four years, it's from 1964 to 68. And so at the after the destruction of Penn Station, Philip Johnson actually became a trustee of the National Trust for Historic Preservation. He served on its board from 1968 to 71. and During this period, he got the idea to donate this property to the National Trust for Historic Preservation. Uh, the discussions for the donation began in 1979 and then were, were finalized in 1986. And at that time, if you can imagine, Philip Johnson is 80 years old. And so the trust allows him to have life estate and he continues to live until he's 98, <laughs> and dies in January 2005. So this this property was gifted to the trust in 1986, and we, we he had planned for its transfer.
0: What are some of the um, I guess unusual events and, and opportunities that you have here for people who
1: who want to visit at the glasshouse? Uh, we have uh, now great. Temporary exhibitions, but we have an excellent um, and very ambitious public programs, which include live events, uh, dance performances, and music performances. Uh, Actually, this fall it'll be a a small performance by Ryuichi Sakamoto and Alvinoto, who uh, were nominated for the Golden Globes and BAFTA for *The Revenant*, for example. Um, I would say that an important aspect of the legacy of Philip Johnson is this idea of being a patron of the arts and supporting the artists. And so artwork uh, exhibitions and our programs and our performances that start here then go on and live. Uh, and we're very proud of that to be able to, to support and continue to sustain the arts.
0: You can visit the glass house now through November. And Yayoi Kusama's exhibition, Narcissus Garden, is included on the tour. If you wait until September, you'll see the glass house like it's never been seen before, covered in Kusama's red polka dots. This special installation called Dots Obsession will run through the end of September. To see pictures and video from our visit to the glass house, you can go to wmprorg slash we live or visit where we live's Facebook page. Thanks to WNPR's digital reporter, Ryan Karen King. When we come back from the break and interview with the historian who has significant details about another controversial part of architect Philip Johnson's life, this is where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy nall Coming up Monday, Connecticut's Old State House in Hartford has closed to the public yet another consequence of the state's continuing budget issues. We'll find out more about its history and if there's a chance the Old State House could reopen. We also begin an occasional series called Know Your Rights. We'll find out more about the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. That's on Monday. Today, where we live, we've taken you along with us to the iconic glass house in New Canaan, Connecticut. It's the home of Philip Johnson and his partner, David Whitney, which opened to the public in 2007. Since then, thousands of people from across the globe have visited the home of the famed architect. But before Johnson changed the landscape of U.S. architecture to favor modernist design, Johnson had political interests that are surprising. Author Mark Wartman wrote about Johnson's Nazi past in a Vanity Fair article. That article stems from his research for his new book, 1941 Fighting the Shadow War A Divided America in a World at War. Mark Wartman joins us by phone. Hi, Mark. You're on Where We Live.
2: Hi, Lucy. Thanks for having me.
0: So I know this is an all encompassing book. Summarize for us how um, you started to look at the Shadow War and Johnson's place in that
2: time. Sure. In the period before uh, December 7, 1941 when the U.S. was attacked at Pearl Harbor, uh, the whole world was at war except for the United States. The U.S. was uh, nominally uh, neutral and at peace with every nation on Earth, but we were caught up deep in the wars that were going on in Europe and in Asia, and we were simultaneously uh, going to war. Uh, and also debating within the United States what the proper role should be for America in these wars. And so there was this uh, tremendous divisive uh, argument and sometimes uh, actual violent fights uh, in America over what we should be doing. And there were uh, many different factions uh, that ranged from uh, out-and-out fascists, uh, Nazi supporters within the U.S., to uh, liberals and uh, social democrats who viewed uh, the war in Europe at, in particular as, as not America's business. And so uh, in my book, I trace out a number of exemplary figures in that, uh, that debate and fight here as well as um, some aspects of the military history of that period when the U.S. was engaged in an undeclared war with Hitler. And, uh, uh, and in the context of what you've been talking about today, Philip Johnson emerged as a significant figure because of his uh, fanatic devotion to Nazism in America and uh, his connections to, uh, to Nazi Germany.
0: In the Vanity Fair article, um, you uh, write that Johnson was no stranger to Europe. Uh, He came from a wealthy family from Cleveland. He traveled to to Germany often with his mother. Um, But if I'm reading this right, it was in 1932 when Nazism really grabbed him. Can you explain uh,
2: what happened? Yeah, Well, actually, even before Hitler came to power, Mm -hmm. uh, in 1932, Johnson... Uh, that was and I should say that was an extraordinary year for Johnson. That was the year in which uh, he curated the uh, international style in architect in architecture exhibit at the Museum of modern Art, and that really set the future course for American and eventually world architecture uh, in uh, adopting modernism as as uh, the great style uh, in architecture for the um, for the 20th century. That took place in 1932. Mm-hmm. And not long after that exhibit opened, Johnson uh, returned to Germany where he'd spent a lot of time in Weimar, Germany. Um, and while there, at uh, the recommendation of a friend, he went to, to a not, uh, National Socialist uh, Party rally outside of Berlin and he saw Hitler for the first time. And this was before Hitler had come to power. Uh, and he was completely smitten. He, he found the experience totally febrile, as he said. Uh, and he uh, basically, from that point on, became uh, an acolyte of uh, Nazism and uh, a devoted proselytizer for Nazism in America.
0: You, I'll go ahead.
2: Oh, and he eventually he returned to the United States, and he began to work uh, for political causes um, that, uh, with the purpose of, of uh, you know, bringing fascism to America or creating an American version of fascism.
0: Uh, in your book, again, 1941, Fighting the Shadow War, Divided America in a World at War, uh, you write that Johnson traveled uh, back and forth between the U.S. and Germany. Uh, but I was curious, you know, we hear often about um, Philip Johnson as this world-renowned architect, but, you know, he was also a gay man. Um, he also um, was a proponent of the modernist movement. These are two things that Nazism, you know, was not about and they actually targeted. So how did he reconcile that if yeah. he was such a fascist?
2: Yeah. Um, that's, you know, how he could hold the, t- uh, the, the two in his mind, uh, uh, is hard for me to explain, but, you know, uh, Johnson had a very active homosexual lifestyle, uh, life, and, you know, he, and much of, of, he had many, uh, gay friends in, in Germany, and he had many friends in the modernist architecture community in Germany, particularly, uh, associated with the Bauhaus and the Bauhaus was closed down by the Nazis, uh, and and the Nazis considered homosexuality something that uh, was punishable by death. Um, So he actually aided some friends from the Bauhaus in uh, uh, emigrating into uh, the United States. But uh, he wrote an article in which he uh, described, in which he said, that if Nazism is setting the clock back at the moment, it's only so that they can take that much farther a leap ahead in the future. Mm. You know, and uh, he wasn't alone in this view of Nazism as somehow a, um, a revolution that needed to be accommodated. Um, Anne Morrow Lim- Lindbergh, Charles Lindbergh's wife, wrote a book in nineteen forty a number one bestseller called the wave of the future in which she called nazism uh... scum on the wave of the future as uh... the world was passing through a revolutionary uh... period and that you know eventually these this, um this sort of froth as uh, she viewed it and as i think philip johnson was trying to uh... claim for it would subside and something uh, new and greater would would uh, develop for for the world.
0: Uh, again, this is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I'm speaking with author Mark Wartman. He's an independent historian, a freelance journalist who's written several books. His latest, 1941, Fighting the Shadow War, Divided America in a World at War. His research includes a surprising look into Philip Johnson's political leanings. Before Johnson became a famous architect known for modernist architecture like the Glass House in New Canaan, Connecticut, you may be surprised to know that Johnson was a fascist. Uh, Mark, when I was reading your book, you know, you open up um, the first two chapters, um, and it's the profile of two journalists, one William Shire and another Philip Johnson. I was surprised to learn that he had gone over to Germany as a journalist. And can you talk about how these men were very different?
2: Yeah, okay. Well, uh, let's start with William Shire. William Shire was uh, C- CBS Radio News' correspondent uh, on the continent. He uh, lived and reported from Berlin, and uh, he his... Uh, uh, his invocation, Hello, America, this is Berlin, was uh, nationally known. Um, and he attempted to convey to Americans just uh, how shocking and frightening what was going on in Nazi Germany was. Uh, his reports were censored, um, but uh, he and eventually he couldn't stand the censorship anymore, and he came back to the United States, and he became uh, – he uh, – Went around the country lecturing about Nazi Germany and the direct threat he saw to America from Nazi Germany, and uh, urging the United States to make a decision to get into this war and to bring aid to uh, Great Britain, which was, uh, you know, uh, under terrible attack, assault by the Nazis. Um, now, uh, the war began on September 1st, 1939, with the invasion of Poland by Germany. Uh, Two and a half weeks later, uh, a group of journalists went with the German army into Poland under the auspices of the German Propaganda Ministry. And the Propaganda Ministry paired Philip Johnson with William Shire. Philip Johnson was reporting for a tabloid put out by Father Charles Coughlin. Uh, Charles Coughlin uh, Reverend Coughlin, was uh, a radio priest, immensely popular. Millions and millions of Americans listened to him every Sunday uh, as he uh, broadcast over the radio. And he also had a, a newspaper, a tabloid, called Social Justice that was filled with anti-Semitic screeds and uh, pro-Nazi articles, um, uh, pro-German articles, uh, and a great deal about uh, the threat that Jews in particular, represented to the world. Um, A lot of it was just uh, absolute drivel. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, Philip Johnson occasionally wrote articles for social justice, um, reporting from Europe as he traveled around the continent. So he uh, managed to, uh, to be sent by the German propaganda ministry, along with these other reporters from major news outlets, to follow the German army as they were basically mopping up Uh, uh, resistance in Poland, and the propaganda ministry stuck Johnson together with William Shire. Mm -hmm. William Shire knew Philip Johnson was, as he said, an American fascist, and yet Philip Johnson was pumping him for information about his views and claiming that he was himself anti-Nazi, and basically uh, Shire thought that Johnson was there to spy on him, and he he and all the other uh, reporters just hated him.
0: Mm-hmm. So when did um, Johnson's, you know, his political leanings, the fact that he was, uh, I, I see he was listed at one time uh, as an American Nazi. When did that start to catch up with him in the U.S.?
2: You know, well, he continued to uh, work with pro-Nazi groups in the United States. He went around uh, the East lecturing uh, about, uh, about Germany and its current state. He, uh, he wrote, as I said, these occasional articles for uh, Coughlin's social justice in which he um, said that Americans were misinformed about Germany and about their, uh, their intentions. Um, but there were investigations that were being carried out by the government of uh, so-called fifth columnists, uh, Americans who were believed to be German plants in the United States trying to uh, basically soften up the American scene so that uh, Americans would not uh, advocate for intervention on behalf of uh, the democracies in Europe and uh, perhaps so that the United States might one day itself uh, be uh, swept up by Nazi Germany. So these investigations were going on. Philip Johnson got wind of them. The FBI was trailing him, uh, and he basically changed his spots. He went in 1940. uh, He was 34 years old, and he went to graduate school at the Harvard Graduate School of of Design. Uh, He had never gotten a formal degree in architecture, though he was – uh, leading tastemaker in architecture by that point, point. Um, and uh, sort of was hiding in plain sight, uh, I guess, until uh, William Shire outed him,
0: and and long before Facebook or, or Twitter, right? So um, how did he out him in a book about his time um, at the at the Polish front?
2: Yeah, so William Shire through uh, they kept a secret diary while he was a reporter in Berlin. And uh, he kept these pages of his diaries sort of hidden within his hotel, even though he knew the Gestapo was searching it. And if you read my book, you'll find out how he managed to uh, to uh, sneak them out of Germany under the noses of the Gestapo. Um, and Shire then uh, put those uh, diaries together into a book called... Uh, Uh, his Berlin Diary, um, which uh, was a a mega-bestseller in 1941. And in it, he calls uh, no punches, uh, holding back no punches, he calls Philip Johnson an American fascist and uh, an agent of the German propaganda ministry. And while Johnson was at Harvard at that point, uh, he was actually he uh tried to found uh an anti-fascist organization and he even got involved in some kind of civil defense group that was organized at Harvard um, and people started calling him out and saying you know there's there is this uh fascist who is uh claiming to be anti-nazi mm-hmm. and uh so uh, uh he was dogged by uh by this Um, Although, amazingly, I think, um, all of his compatriots in the American fascist movement were indicted for sedition uh, during this this period.
0: But not Philip Johnson. But
2: not Philip Johnson. He alone managed to avoid indictment. All because of connections? Well, I'm speculating. I'm (laughs) speculating. But, you know, Philip Johnson was very close to to the Rockefeller family. Abby Aldrich Rockefeller was the driving force uh, behind the founding of the Museum of Modern Art. Uh, Nelson Rockefeller was the president of the Museum of Modern Art and was a contemporary of Philip Johnson, knew him well, and considered himself a connoisseur of architecture. And Nelson Rockefeller uh, had gone to Washington where he created an agency that was uh, a combination of a, an American propaganda agency and, and an intelligence network set up to, uh, to basically combat Nazi activities in South America. You know, the, Germany had been very effective at developing uh, uh, its influence in South America for trade and other purposes, and Nelson Rockefeller was working to counter that effort. And he worked very closely with the FBI and as well as congressional investigators uh, looking into uh, fascist activities in the United States tied to South America. Uh, And I have to believe that when these indictments were coming down and when the FBI was uh, looking into Philip Johnson's activities and when Congress was looking into his activities – that Nelson Rockefeller may have personally intervened uh, to basically avoid the embarrassment of the man mm-hmm. who, was, who founded the architecture department at the Museum of Modern Art, which uh, some people called the Rockefeller Museum, uh, from being indicted for being a mm-hmm. Nazi agent.
0: I'm speaking with Mark Wartman, the author of 1941, Fighting the Shadow War, Divided America in a World at War. Part of his book uh, focuses in on Philip Johnson. You know, earlier we were talking about the iconic glass house in New Canaan, Connecticut, and how uh, Philip Johnson was an icon uh, in the architecture and art world. But he had this past, this fascist past, and that's part of uh, Mark Wartman's uh, new book. And I'm curious, Mark, we just have a couple more minutes. You know, how how did this uh, fascist past how did that follow him throughout his career? Um, because obviously before your book, some people did know about um, you know, his political leanings, but it didn't seem to impact him.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah really, he, uh, at one point he was, his ambition was to be uh, uh, the architect for the Thousand-Year Reich, but uh, he ended up being the architect for the American century. And uh, it occasionally uh, came around to bite him, he was up for a major commission uh, for a uh, federal project, and uh, there was, in, in the early 1960s, for what would have been at the time, one of his most significant uh, building projects. And the um, there was a background check done on him, and when uh, his uh, fascist past emerged, um, he was Uh, they decided that he should not receive that commission Um, Johnson attempted to make amends to a certain degree he uh, gave free architectural services for the design of a synagogue in Port Chester New York Uh, he supposedly also offered some uh, uh, architectural services for a project in Israel Um, and he uh, certainly had uh, close uh, friendships and support for many people in the architecture uh, community who were Jewish you know um, Robert Stern, the now former dean of the Yale School of Architecture, uh, was very close to Philip Johnson and wh- whom he considered a mentor in part, and uh, has always defended him mm-hmm. um, so you know he uh, it was basically a submerged part of his life. Uh, people in the architecture community, I think had a, a, a degree of awareness of about that uh, that past, and basically because Johnson was both enormously influential, uh, very generous with young architects uh, and uh, a very powerful figure in. Uh, the in American architecture throughout the uh, the mid-century period, um, you know, I think I think it was basically uh, permitted to be, that um, his past was past.
0: I want to thank Mark Wortman, author of 1941: Fighting the Shadow War, Divided America in a World at War. A really interesting book, and I appreciate this insightful conversation. Thank you so much for your time, Mark.
2: Thank you, Lucy. I enjoyed it.
0: Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf, WMPR's digital editor. Heather Brandon, executive producer, is Katie Tolarski Again, you can continue this conversation on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. When you're there, don't forget to check out a video of our tour of the Philip Johnson Glass House in New Canaan, shot beautifully by WMPR's digital reporter, Ryan Karen King. I'm Lucy nall Thanks for listening.